Greetings, I'm Keith Klein, the host of the VentureFist podcast, where I interview the most fascinating people in the tech scene. This is episode 170, and today's guest is Nick Patrick, co-founder and CEO of Radar. A lot of apps these days count on knowing your location. It is a key piece to enabling the product and offering the right user experience. However, the options for enabling a location offering from a technical point of view have been very limited. It basically has involved a lot of custom-built solutions. It kind of reminds me of the world of payments. Online payment services have existed for several years, but it wasn't until Stripe changed the game and built a platform that allowed companies to enable online payments and subscription services very easily easily with a product that just worked. Well, Radar is looking to do the same for location-aware product experiences with its privacy-first location data infrastructure platform. Nick and his co-founder, Cody Berman, are Foursquare alumni and have a lot of experience with location services. The company recently announced a $20 million Series B round of funding led by Excel. In this episode of our podcast, we cover lots of great topics, like the current trends in the tech industry as it relates to data and privacy. Nick's decision to pursue a career in product management and his experience at Microsoft, Foursquare, and Handy, the aha moment that led to the founding of Radar, all the details on Radar in terms of how they are changing the narrative on location data, plus some interesting use case examples, advice for entrepreneurs on negotiating a company's valuation, and so much more. Okay, quick side note. It's absolutely crazy that we are now on to episode 170. I want to thank you for listening, and I also want to send a huge thank you to all of our guests. We've had so many amazing entrepreneurs and investors that have shared lots of stories and great advice. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Now, if there's someone that you are interested in having me interview for a future episode, or maybe there's someone who you think our audience would benefit from hearing their story, please send an email to info at All right, without further ado, here's my interview with Nick. Nick, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks for having me. So I'm excited to talk to you because um, you know, you're, you're building a company that uh, is, is doing a lot in terms of you know, making, um, you know, location real now with applications. And uh, it's just a very uh, interesting platform that we're going to talk a lot about in terms of radar and what you guys are up to. But before we get into that, let's, let's talk a little bit about uh, data and, and privacy. It's obviously a, something that's on the radar for consumers as it should be. And uh, companies certainly had to think about it differently with uh, legislation like GDPR and the California privacy law. So like, what do you, how do you think companies should be thinking about these things as it relates to the, you know, the trends around, you know, data privacy? Yeah, I think that's spot on. You know, we started the company about four years ago and, and really two big things have happened since then. I think first, you know, the need for location-based services has only grown. Uh, location underpins a lot of the app experiences that we use every day from, you know, calling an Uber to searching for restaurants on Yelp to, you know, geotagging our posts on, on Instagram and Snapchat. So, uh, location-based experiences are, are even more in demand uh, than they were. It's, it's still too challenging to build, which is, is, is the problem that we're trying to solve for, for companies, which we'll talk a bit about. But I think you're right. I think the second thing that we've observed is that data privacy is under more scrutiny than ever. I think part of that is coming from legislation, things like GDPR and CCPA. I think part of that is coming from uh, you know, consumer preferences, really. I think consumers uh, expect to have control over their data. They expect transparency. Uh, they expect you know, an exchange of value when they, when they do grant permissions. Um, so I think we're trying to build the most developer friendly platform, uh, for location. So to make it really easy for folks to build these location based experiences, 
but also help them do it in the right way. Uh, do this in a privacy first way. And I think part of that is a business model thing. Part of that is a product thing, which happy to happy to unpack that. Yeah. Well, let's talk about your background. So even, you know, that foundational level stuff of like, where did you grow up? You know, what were we like as a kid? What'd your parents do for work? Things like that. For sure. Uh, I grew up a little bit north of Baltimore. So in Maryland, um, I was a nerdy kid. Uh, I got into computer programming when I was about 11 or 12. I think my first, first computer, my first computer, I actually, you know, my, my parents were very supportive of my early, uh, tech habits. And, uh, I, I basically asked for a bunch of raw materials to build a computer. I think when I was 11 or 12, so I, I built my own computer, uh, played a lot of computer games on it. That's uh, I cool. think, yeah, very cool. And I, I think my first foray into programming, if you want to call it that was, uh, I built a Pokemon website where I would design my own Pokemon. Um, so sort of learning HTML, learning CSS, things like that. Um, and then over time got into visual basic programming and, you know, very lucky, lucky to have parents that, uh, supported me learning all that stuff uh, when I was a kid. Well, I guess that makes sense why you went on to uh, study computer science at Duke. And uh, I noticed on your uh, LinkedIn profile, you said you know, you're a basketball fan. So were you, I visited Duke's campus for the first time last year, and it's mm -hmm. amazingly beautiful. But what was super fun and interesting was I saw all these students in tents lined up waiting for tickets for the UNC game that was happening. And I found out these kids were in tents for like months waiting for these tickets. So what's that yeah. all about? <laughs> Yeah, Duke was a, a really awesome place to go to college. I was super lucky to go there. I think it was a great balance of academics and, you know, study computer science, study biology as well. I actually initially wanted to get a PhD in computational biology and did a bunch of research and lab work and, and kind of hated it. Had like a mid-college crisis and um, pivoted to being a, a comp sci major and eventually going to business school and getting into startups. Um, but definitely a, a good sports scene as well. Um, I tented, as they call it, for uh, basketball games for three years. Basically, uh, you form a group of 12 students, you camp out for a couple weeks to hold your spot in line. Um, and, and towards the end, as it gets closer to the game, uh, it turns into a giant party, basically. Um, and, and so that was a great experience. We unfortunately lost to UNC all four years that I was there. Uh, um, we did beat UNC twice this year. So, um, right. <laughs> you know, as it stands right now, we're, we're doing okay. But, um, it was a ton of fun and, and I think, you know, great institution that I was very fortunate to attend both from an academic perspective and a, you know, having fun perspective. Yeah, it definitely gave me a whole new appreciation for watching the games on TV now and just seeing how like small that arena is and those seats, you see the students, I'm like, those students went through a lot to get those tickets. <laughs> so, yeah, I think it holds, I think it holds 9,000 students or yeah. 9,000 uh, fans. So it's, it's definitely a intimate uh, sporting environment for sure. So what'd you do after graduation? So, you know, I mentioned I initially wanted to get a PhD, kind of decided not to go down that path and said, hey, I really like this computer programming stuff, but I'm also really interested in the business side of things. So product management seemed like a good path for me. Uh, went now, did to, you know that existed? Like product management? Like let's, my background is recruiting and product management was my thing, yet it was always interesting to see how people landed in that. Most people didn't mm -hmm. even know that was an option coming out of school. Yeah, I, I certainly didn't know it was an option going into school. I, th I think as I started to research different paths forward, you know, I, I could have applied to a Microsoft or a Google as an engineer, um, but but decided that you know product management could be a cool mix of both the the tech side of things, but also the the business side of things. 
this idea of being a little mini CEO of the, the feature or the product that you were working on was, was very appealing. So I, I went to Microsoft for two years as a PM, worked on uh, developer products for Dynamics CRM, which is Microsoft's Salesforce competitor, and learned a ton. You know, Microsoft is obviously a, a huge company. Uh, I think I joined in the third year of a three-year ship cycle. And this was back when Microsoft was still sort of embracing the cloud, right? And uh, I think we were still mostly distributing products by, you know, shipping them on, you know, burned on a DVDs, shrink-wrapped in a box, right? Um, very different from the, you know, SaaS, Agile distribution that um, Microsoft and, and, and most uh, tech companies follow nowadays. So it was an interesting learning experience. I think a, a great place to, you know, build a foundation of, of product management fundamentals, but over time, I you know basically progressively tried to go smaller and smaller in in, in terms of company size. So then, from there, you attended uh, HBS to get your MBA. Yeah, that's right. I, I think um, you know actually applied to HBS in undergrad when I was having this mid college crisis that I mentioned. Didn't really know what business school was all about. Seemed like a good way to um, get into business, uh, and you know I, I think it turned out to be at the end of the day, a, a great experience in a number of different ways, but most importantly, a great networking experience. Uh, met a lot of really incredible people there from, from all different backgrounds, all different skill sets. Um, you know, when I was there, I basically said, I, I wanna keep doing this product management thing, but I wanna do it at a smaller company where I, I use the product personally, I'm, I'm really passionate about it. At the time for me, that was Foursquare. And uh, interned at Foursquare between my two years of business school, went back full time afterwards. Um, great learning experience there. I also met uh, two of the, the co-founders of Handy, which was an on-demand uh, home services startup. Uh, the, the two co-founders actually dropped out after their first year. We sort of kept in touch and uh, eventually joined there as the, as the first product person. So uh, great learning experience, great networking experience. Again, uh, going to business school was a ton of fun. I don't know if I would do it again personally, but it, it was certainly a fun, fun two years when I was there. Well, it sounds like, you know, from, you know, I've talked to lots of people that have gone to on to business school and it just sounds like it's a good two year cycle to kind of think through what do you want to do, make some amazing contacts. You obviously learn a ton too, that goes without saying, but it just sounds like it's a good two years to kind of, you know, just really reflect on the future. And, you know, so many, I've, I've had lots of HBS grads that have gone on to start companies on this podcast. So it's just, um, it's obviously a great opportunity to network. Absolutely. So at, um, at Handy, what, like, what do you, or even at Foursquare, what do you think that experience taught you in terms of that, you know, raw product, you know, building and shipping product? Yeah, I was, was, was lucky enough to have a really great manager at Foursquare, Noah Weiss, who went on to be uh, an executive at Slack and uh, he's still there. And, you know, product management at a small company like Foursquare is, is very different from product management at a company like Microsoft. You know, you're, you're moving a lot faster. Um, you're shipping products almost continuously you're working with engineers who are very talented and, and product oriented themselves. Um, you know, I, I think you can work with engineers or you can build an engineering culture where, um, you know, specs are delivered. Everything is meticulously specced out every single edge case. Um, and you're almost resented as the product manager. If there are any gaps, you can work um, on the flip side in, in engineering environments where engineers are product oriented themselves. They're excited to fill in, in the gaps. They're, they're entrepreneurial. And I think the engineering team at Foursquare was, was like that. Um, so it was, it was a learning experience for me in, in, in terms of um, how to write specs, how to structure projects, um, how quickly things move, 
um, and just sort of the interaction between you know product management and um, and the rest of the company. I think every company is a little bit different, and I think the product management style at, at Microsoft, in a lot of ways, makes sense for Microsoft as a, as a big company with a lot of moving parts. Um, it made sense at Foursquare at the time, and at Handy, where I was the first product person, had the chance to help put you know some initial processes in place and build out the team. Um, there were other patterns that were, that were useful, just sort of based on the type of company that, that Handy was building and the, and the needs there. So, you know, I think one thing that I've learned, and this has been helpful in the context of Radar as well, is there's no one-size-fits-all product management process or, or team structure. Um, it's a little bit different depending on, on what you're trying to do, how the business works, and, and the stage of the company. Now, Foursquare obviously has been around for a while, and it's, you know, hit levels of scale, which is amazing. Um, is there a, like a strong alumni core that have gone off and started companies, you, you being one of them, but I would think there's lots of other people that have you know, gone on and, and started other companies. Yeah, I was, was very lucky to um, team up with Kobe Berman, my co-founder at Radar, and then Tim Jolene, our, our CTO, both of whom I worked with at Foursquare. And they were two of the guys who were on my super short list for people that I wanted to work with again eventually. And, and the fact that I get to work with them now at Radar is, is really, really cool. I mentioned Noah, my manager at Foursquare, who went over to Slack. Uh, a number of early Slack New York team members came from Foursquare. Uh, there have been a, a number of other folks who've, who've gone out and started companies. Uh, the founders of Sunrise, which is a, a calendar app that Microsoft sure. acquired, yep, uh, were, were designers on the Foursquare team. They're now actually working on a, an app called Jumbo, or, or one of them is now working on an app called Jumbo, mm -hmm. uh, which is an app for consumers to manage uh, their personal data. So it's a, it's a privacy-related app. And um, you know, we've been lucky enough to hire a few Foursquare alums at, at Radar as well um, on the engineering team. So uh, it's, it's a, it was a very talented group of people um, out doing all sorts of interesting things. And it's, it's, it's very cool to see that alumni network um, yeah. doing great stuff. Yeah, it's good for the ecosystem. Obviously, you want companies to thrive, but it's good when you see people spawn off and start next generation companies too. So yep. um, well, let's talk about Radar. So, um, so how did you and Kobe come about you know, coming together to, to kind of come across this idea and the problem to solve? We've been in and around the location space for a while. So obviously at Foursquare, thinking about the location space a lot. Mm -hmm. I was, uh, like I said, the first product person at, at Handy. When I was there, we had the experience of needing to build the system to track our cleaners and handymen. We wanted to deliver this Uber style, see your service provider on a map type experience. You know, your booking is about to start. Are they five minutes away? Are they 10 minutes away? Are they running late? You know, from an operational perspective, if you want to dis dispatch a service provider to a booking or, you know, logistically understand where they are. So we, we, we set out to build that system and I think thought it would be relatively easy to build. You know, we put an iOS engineer on it. We put an Android engineer on it, a web engineer, a server engineer, and, um, you know, spent a couple months building it. It turned out to be really tough. Um, it was tough to do it reliably. It was tough to do it in a battery efficient way. You know, if you're location tracking, um, or if you're using location services on, on a smartphone, it'll, it'll drain the battery if, if you don't do it properly. Mm -hmm. um, it was challenging to build the product experiences to actually surface this data and make it actionable. Um, and you know, reflecting on it after the fact, when we wanted to do payments, we just popped in Stripe. When we wanted to do analytics, we just popped in Mixpanel. When we wanted to send a text message, we just popped in Twilio. And it felt like there was no great developer-friendly full-stack solution for location. So that was where the initial idea for Radar came from. Started socializing this with Kobe. This was a couple months after I had left Handy and I'd been sort of prototyping other apps, none of which went anywhere. 
and, and shared this idea with Kobe. Kobe uh, was on the sales side at Foursquare. He went to be the first seller at a company here in New York called MParticle, which is an enterprise SaaS solution for uh, its customer data platform, mm-hmm. uh, customer data management. And he was hearing that a lot of his um, customers and prospects wanted to collect more location data. They wanted to action off of it. They wanted to build experience off of it. They wanted to do it in the right way. And so we sort of married those two experiences to say, let's build a great developer-friendly uh, SaaS product for, for location. And, and that, was how, that was how Radar started. And that was early 2016, which is, is hard to believe. But since then, and happy to unpack that journey, it's, it's basically been um, you know, an amazing journey of building the team, building product, getting it out in market, you know, iterating on it. And um, now we're uh, almost a 30 person uh, company here in New York and uh, just closed our series B. So it's, it's, it's been a great ride. Yeah. So 20 million announced, which is a total of 30 and a half million, which is uh, which is amazing. But so, so, so what is radar today? Like, what do you guys do? Yeah. So radar is location data infrastructure. Basically we help developers and product teams build great location based app experiences we have APIs and SDKs for things like geofencing or location search or uh, geocoding that, that basically you know, make this stuff really easy to, to build with. We're providing building blocks for, for location for developers. Uh, you might use them to you know, power a store locator. You might use them to uh, send a location-based push notification when you're in a particular city or at a particular place. You might use it to change the app experience based on the user's current location. Um, so take a travel app, for example, if I open the travel app and I'm sitting at home on my couch versus at the airport versus in a new city, you might want to show me different content based on my current location. Maybe at home, it's about booking my next trip. Maybe at the airport, it's about uh, my current trip uh, is my flight on time. Uh, maybe you're helping me access my boarding pass. When I'm in a new city, maybe you're pushing me interesting you know, recommendations with, with places and content nearby. And so at, at Radar, we want to make it really easy to build those types of engaging experiences for users, do it in a privacy conscious way. And, and, and radar is basically building blocks for, uh, for location-based app experiences. And you mentioned uh, the analogy of, of Stripe, which, uh, and you talked about, you know, this didn't exist. It was hard to build this location aware type of uh, integration. So, so the same happened with me. So for uh, VentureFizz for payment processing, we used PayPal. And when we moved to more of a, a a subscription model, it was a nightmare, nightmare. And I'm like, how, how is PayPal, the like payments giant that's been around forever, this is so complex. And then swipe, a Stripe came in mm-hmm. and totally changed it. And then granted, it, it is more of a developer tool, but once it works, it, like I used to run into so many problems with credit cards getting denied. And it wasn't the problem with the credit card, it just was so finicky in terms of what payments it would accept. So ever since we moved to Stripe, it's just been beautiful and seamless. So I imagine that that's similar feedback you get from your customers. Yeah, Stripe has certainly set the bar in terms of documentation, ease of use, simplicity of the the dashboard and the frameworks and the pricing and and all of that. Um, And so I I certainly don't think we're Stripe caliber yet, but they're a great inspiration to, to us. Um, you know, our, our goal is to abstract away all the different challenges and cross-platform differences when it comes to, to building with, with location. Um, and so Stripe, Stripe sets a great example for us. So how has the product evolved? Like, how do you even get started building this type of platform that developers know that it exists, right? And there's so many different use cases for this type of solution. So how do you even get started? And then how do you start to monetize that? Mm-hmm. We started with geofencing. Um, so 
for those who aren't familiar with, with geofences, you're basically setting up a virtual area. It might be a circle, it might be a polygon on a map. And when a device enters that area, you generate uh, an event. So enter geofence or exited geofence. You know, the geofence might represent uh, a place like a store. It might represent an airport. It might represent a city. Um, and so we wanted to make it really easy to build with geofencing. That was, that was where we started. And the alternatives were basically, you know, working with kind of the out of the box geofencing uh, capabilities on iOS and Android, which our SDK sits on top of, but they can be pretty, pretty challenging to work with at scale. Um, you know, if, if you're building directly against them. So we, we started there, you know, we also started, um, I think when people think about geofencing, they think about uh, background location, they think about push notifications. So we started with iOS and Android uh, SDKs, and a lot of it was very focused on kind of generating events in, in the background and maybe triggering push notifications based off of that. Over time, a, a couple things have happened. First, customers asked us for additional, we, we call them context types, but you know, you can create custom geofences, but customers said, hey, I want to know whenever, you know, somebody is at any airport or any McDonald's, can you just tell me that stuff out of the box? So we launched a, a new context type called places where effectively, effectively we have out of the box geofences where without setting up any custom geofences, we can say, you know, user entered a place with category airport or user entered a place with category or, or with chain equals McDonald's, right? Mm -hmm. uh, we added other types of out of the box geofences as well. So our regions context type has country boundaries, state boundaries, uh, and city boundaries out of the box. So, you know, part of the way the product has evolved is providing customers with, um, you know, more context types, essentially out of the box geofences. Uh, another way the product has evolved is uh, this stuff is relevant beyond just smartphones, right? You can add geofencing to your iOS or Android application, but Maybe you want to add location context to a website. Could be mobile web, could be desktop web. You know, you think about um, augmented reality is, is all about where you are, right? There needs to be a location context layer. Um, Self-driving cars, IoT, there, there's a location component. So we're starting to think about how we move past smartphones and be a location layer for all products and services across all devices. And then I think the last piece, and this is something that we were talking about earlier in the show, uh, is, is privacy concerns and compliance. And we want to be the most privacy-friendly uh, location data infrastructure. Part of that is our business model. We're a SaaS company. Uh, basically, we, we charge you based on how many monthly active users that you have. Um, we uh, keep the data siloed to each individual customer. So we're not turning around and monetizing or selling the, the location data that, that we collect. Um, Part of it is also product functionality, right? So how do I build these great location-based app experiences but minimize the amount of data that I'm collecting, right? Maybe no user data is sent to the server at all. Um, so Radar actually isn't persisting any location data tied to a, a user identity. It's, it's truly anonymous. Um, maybe there is a use case for sending it to the server, but we can help customers set up uh, data retention policies such that data expires quickly or only certain types of, of data are, are persisted. So helping people build more types of location-based experiences on all sorts of different um, applications and, and, and devices, and also doing it in a very privacy-friendly way. And then how did the sales and marketing efforts evolve? Like when you started getting some traction with some customers, did you start to see kind of like a, almost like a word of mouth type of spreading, or was there more of a direct reach out? Was it, you know, more inbound demand gen, like, like what, what methods worked in the earlier days and then how's your sales model, you know, changed since then? Mm -hmm. Well, in the early days when it was just Kobe and me, 
nobody knew about us, so there wasn't a name right. and, <laughs> yeah, and basically the, started. <laughs> yeah, and, and so basically the, the, the way we divided responsibilities was I would write the code and Kobe would sell. And Kobe was effectively the account executive, SDR, you know, marketing team all in one. And it was a lot of pounding the pavement, sending a lot of emails, working our network to line up the first couple of meetings. Um, I would sit in a corner and, and code and uh, mock up whatever feature it was that we were going to build next. In the context of customer conversations, I would play sales engineer. So I would be the sort of technical consultant during a customer conversation or during a sales cycle. And to the extent that there was a gap in product functionality, you know, maybe a customer wanted some geofences out of the box or uh, they were confused by this aspect of the SDK or they needed to um, you know, send data to a new destination or whatever, I would basically pull an all-nighter or work all weekend and, and build that feature and then we'd go back to them you know, the, next, the next business day. Um, that obviously doesn't scale super well. So over time, um, as the team has grown, we, we've started to uh, write more stuff down um, we've started to make the products uh, obviously more full featured, but also more self-serve. So it's easier um, for customers to sign up and get started with, without a ton of, of handholding. Um, and, and so that's, um, you know, part of the way that it's, it's evolved uh, over time. And now we have, um, you know, a, a mini brand, I would say, forming where folks have heard about us. We get a fair amount of inbounds. Um, you know, it, it might be individual developers signing up self-serve to use radar and then upgrading to a paid plan over time. Um, or, uh, you know, might be another path in maybe they see one of our blog posts or, uh, they see an ad or something like that. So we're starting to build out more of this demand gen sales engine over time, um, starting to build a brand. We really want to make radar synonymous with location. If you're a developer or you're a product manager and you want to build a location based experience, uh, radar should pop into your head right away, right? In the same way that if you want to add payments to your app, Stripe should should pop into your head. So we have a long way to go. Um, you know, we, we obviously work with some some great customers and and are doing some pretty serious scale, which happy to talk about that. Um, but uh, still, just getting started, and uh, a ton of exciting stuff for us to do over the next over the next several years. And well, that's a perfect segue. So talk about a couple of the you know customers and the different use cases of how they're using your platform. Sure. We work with a number of different customers across a number of different verticals. Uh, might be food and dining, might be shopping and retail, might be travel and, and transportation, sports. A couple examples. Uh, Burger King ran a campaign called the, the Whopper Detour, uh, which you may have heard of. Some of your listeners may have heard of. Uh, the idea was if you downloaded the Burger King app and you went near a McDonald's, you could order a Whopper for a penny. You just had to leave the McDonald's and go to the nearest Burger King to, to pick it up. So Burger King came to us and it, it drove millions of downloads. Very, very creative idea. And Burger King came to us and said, hey, we want to build this product experience. Uh, we have uh, 14,000 McDonald's locations that we need to geofence. Can, can you help us out with that? And uh, we were able to help them with that. So that's a, a good example of sort of a, a product experience um, on the food and dining side. But work with companies like Ibotta, which you may have heard of or seen commercials. Yeah, I, I have the app. My wife loves it. There you go. Um, so we helped them. Uh, you know, understand when somebody visits a retailer on the Ibotta platform, maybe you're reminding them to use the app. Um, in the future, I think we're going to help them with, with, with other in-app location-based functionality as well. Um, you know, companies like DraftKings, so fantasy sports, um, gambling is only legal in, in certain states. You know, can we help them understand when somebody's in a particular state and, and maybe prompt them to prompt them to use the app? Uh, travel companies like booking.com, you know, can we help, can we help travel apps understand when somebody's in a new city or at an airport or, um, you know, 
whatever, at a hotel and, and build relevant experiences based off of that. We're starting to see new verticals as well. So we're working with uh, a state government to help them geofence uh, road closures and emergencies like wildfires, which is, is really cool. We're starting to see some interest from uh, banks that, that potentially want to use location more from an operational perspective for anti-fraud type use cases. If your phone is over here, but your credit card is swiped over here and those two things don't match up, um, maybe that should be flagged, right? So we're starting to see um, you know, more use cases emerge over time. We've also started um, being used at a bunch of hackathons and we've started to see students pick up radar and, and really inspire us with new use cases that we hadn't even thought of before. Uh, there was uh, a college hackathon where somebody basically built an app to geofence a group of friends going out for the night. And if somebody left that geofence uh, unexpectedly, their friends would, would get alerted, right? <laughs> so interesting sort of safety <laughs> use cases. And, uh, uh, you know, part of the reason why we want to make radar super accessible and easy for developers to use is so that anybody can sign up and get started. Um, but, but also because it inspires us about, you know, people sort of picking up the product and, and using it for things that maybe we didn't anticipate. And that inspires our roadmap. It, it inspires, um, you know, additional features that we can build to democratize that or, 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 or enable use cases like that. Well, so you and Kobe were first time founders or our first time founders. So with the, what was it like raising capital, you know, raising the seed round? And then there's always the, you know, do we get the series A and now you're series B. So how has that process been, uh, you know, raising capital? It's gotten progressively easier. Uh, I was personally pretty bad at it at the beginning. I'll, I'll freely admit that. Um, you know, it's, it's a little bit daunting when, when you start, right. Um, you're going out and you're asking folks for, for millions of dollars and, um, you know, I, I think when we raised our seed round, we probably had about 30 people tell us no before we got uh, a term sheet. Um, you know, I, I think the the mistake that I made when we were initially raising was I was sort of looking for the, you know, the perfect way to run the process, right? Like, how many people should I talk to per week? How do I structure the perfect introduction? Um, what do I ask for from a valuation perspective? And what I realized over time was, you know, just get out there and, and start giving your pitch. Um, be very thoughtful about how you're pitching the opportunity, refine it over time, you know, create a sense of urgency. And um, if you tell a good story, if you have a good product, if you have, uh, if you have traction, it'll work itself out. And um, it's, it's gotten progressively easier for, for us over time. Um, I think that's true of fundraising. I think it's true of, of building the company as well. Like we've learned a lot and I think grown a lot over the last couple of years. Um, the nice thing is it sort of progressively gets harder, right? So I think if we had gone from two people to 30 people overnight, uh, it would have been a bit overwhelming, but we went from two to five and then we went from five to 10 and then we went from, from 10 to 30, right? And every time you make one of those big sort of, you know, order of magnitude leaps in, in company size, stuff breaks and, and you have processes that you need to add or processes that you need to change or, you know, things that you need to standardize or write down or change or whatever. And, uh, it's, it's, it's a never ending process. Um, but you know, I think both from a fundraising and a company building perspective, we've learned a lot over the last couple of years, and I think you know still have a lot to learn over the next couple of years as well. Well, you touched upon the valuation piece. So how how should entrepreneurs think about that? Is it? You know, I think some entrepreneurs probably get caught up in it, like overthinking the valuation. Um, so what advice would you give to entrepreneurs on you know setting what their expectations are for the valuation versus what the term sheet might say? Yeah, I think um, oftentimes the type of round that you're raising and the amount that you're raising influences what type of valuation you're going to get. You know, so does your level of traction. So does the amount of leverage that, that you have in the process. 
um, you know, the goalposts are always sort of changing, but I think, you know, seed round sizes, series A round sizes and valuation ranges. Um, there's some numbers out there about what's typical and there are certainly outliers. Um, but oftentimes you'll sort of fall in that standard range and, uh, your business needs to be at a certain point to, to be able to have those conversations, whether it's, you know, the amount of revenue, or as you get further along things like your margins or your retention rates or, or things like that. Right. So, um, one thing that I think has been great, and this is true of fundraising, this is true of um, um, you know, managing or, or, or starting a startup in general, it's true of product management, is uh, there's a lot more content here than there was four years ago, and there's a lot more content than there was uh, four years before that, right? So uh, a lot of people have done this before, there's a lot of data, there's a lot of guideposts to, to help you. And, um, um, and honestly, one of the things that's been most helpful for us has been We've had some great investors that have given us a ton of advice and helped us, you know, grow the company and, and, uh, and get to the next round. We had a lot of uh, advisors that were tremendously helpful to us in the early days and even just friends and former colleagues and, and folks in our network. So we've been very fortunate to have help from a number of different folks and never would have gotten to this point without them either. Well, what do you think has been like the hardest part? Um, there's lots of difficult parts of building a company, but what do you think has been, you know, kind of the hardest part as well as, uh, or maybe, you know, the biggest lesson learned, you know, since starting the company. Yeah, the hardest part for me, and, and this is, it's, it's a good problem to have is just how do we make sure that everybody stays aligned and in the loop as the, as the company grows, right? Um, in the early days, you're a few people sitting around a table and you can just sort of talk, you don't have to write anything down. And in fact, writing stuff down would, would slow you down. But as you scale, um, obviously you, you, you need to write stuff down. You need to take the knowledge uh, out of your head and you need to put it in a place where any, anybody can see it and, uh, and, and learn and, and get ramped up, right? So um, it doesn't happen all at once. It's not like you sort of flip a switch and say, okay, you know, now we have to document everything. It's, it's a very sort of gradual transition and the amount of process and, and, and documentation um, changes. It's, it's a sliding scale as the, as the company grows. Um, we just did a employee engagement survey where we sort of took a pulse about how people were feeling earlier this year. Mm -hmm. And, uh, we kind of ran the numbers and realized that over 50% of the employees uh, had been with the company for less than six months. And, um, that's amazing. And all of them are off to a great start, which is, is, is really cool. We've been, we've tried to be very thoughtful about onboarding. Um, but you know, we just did an all hands today. It was, um, our first ever all remote all hands, which, which, which went well, um, but you just sort of realize as, as the team grows, how many concepts and data points and just terms that you throw around every day are um, unfamiliar to, to new folks joining the team. And, um, you know, we're basically just making an effort to be cognizant of that and start writing stuff down more, really invest in communication and documentation and enablement as we, as we scale. And, that, and along with the scaling part, like, how do you uh, think about culture? Like, how do you, you know, companies as they scale, sometimes the culture can, you know, be part that uh, starts to diminish. So how, how have you thought about the culture side? We went through a mission, vision, values exercise as a team early last year. And we, we tried to go through a similar exercise when the company was five people. And what we realized was uh, we just, we didn't have enough data points yet. Mm -hmm. um, it kind of felt like we were making stuff up. And uh, obviously, you know, the, the founders, the, the early team, you have a certain background and you have a certain viewpoint and you have a certain personality that maybe seeds the culture and, and kind of infuses um, what the, what the core of it is. But one thing that's been really fun for us is um, as we've grown, we now have more data points about um, what makes us successful and what doesn't. 
right? And that's unique to us as a team. It's unique to us as a company. It's unique to our business. And, you know, we've had um, been lucky enough to hire some tremendously talented people who've, who've done great here and they've done great because of who they are, but also because we've conducted ourselves in a, in a certain way. And we've, you know, unfortunately had a few folks that, that didn't work out. And so we have these data points about what works, what doesn't, you know, there's an up, there's a down. And we were able to basically codify, um, codify company values that said, Hey, this is the radar way. This, this is what works for, for us. Um, and so try to be very deliberate about it. You know, you, you don't want to, um, uh, make this stuff seem corny, right? Paint it on the wall and, and, you know, cursive letters or, or, or whatever. You can do that, um, but it needs to be authentic. It needs to be something that um, is, is actually true. Um, it's, it's, it's the way that you conduct yourselves. And you need to, I, I think, be willing to reassess every year or two and, um, you know, change it over time, right? As, as the company grows, maybe we swap one value out for another. You know, we've rewarded some values for, for clarity. Um, and, um, yeah, you know, it's, it's, it's been fun to collect data points and, um, and, and actually make this stuff organic and, and we'll see how it evolves as the, as the company grows to a hundred people over the next couple of years. Well, the, so you obviously just raised your series B, which means you're hiring. So what's the, what's the plan as far as growth and, and what, what functional areas are you hiring for? We're hiring across functions. So we're going to try to double the size of the team this year, go from 25 to about 50. Some of our, functions have been around for a while and, and they're already starting to scale. The engineering team is, is seven or eight people at this point. Uh, the sales team is, is four or five people. Some functions are relatively new, right? Customer success, marketing, sales engineering, uh, sales operations uh, are all new functions for us, right? And, and so some functions we're still, still building from scratch. Um, we don't have any product managers yet. We have a really talented product designer but I'm sort of playing head of products right now. So we'll be, we'll be hiring a, a director of products. Oh, that's a great one right there. So back in my, my search days, the, the first product hire under the founder is such a great role. Yeah. Very near and dear to my heart. And, you know, I, I've been in the shoes of um, whoever this person will be, you know, being the first product person at, at a startup myself. So, and, and lots of personal learnings from, from that experience. So, um, you know, luckily we have a, a very talented recruiting lead um, who joined us from greenhouse. He's helped us level up, the, the process and the tools there, you know, starting to invest more in, in diversity and inclusion as we grow. Um, and yeah, just really excited to grow the team. I, I think the single biggest thing that we can do to move the business forward right now is to hire incredibly talented uh, folks. And we've done a great job of that so far. Obviously, the numbers get bigger and bigger as you scale. And uh, it's, it's personally a big focus of mine as the, as the team grows. How about uh, things that you're checking out these days? Podcasts, books that you'd recommend. They could be business. They could be fun too. It doesn't have to always be business. Yeah. Um, you know, podcasts that I've been checking out, let's see here, um, was just on the, uh, MongoDB, MongoDB podcast, which was, was mm -hmm. fun. Um, you know, we've used MongoDB since the, the early days and, um, you know, it was, it was a technology that we use at Foursquare as a technology that Tim, our CTO used there as well. Um, and so that was, that was great sort of talking about our experiences scaling radar from a technical perspective uh, early on um, was just on the dorm room fun podcast that hasn't been released yet. Um, and mm. my former colleague, Eric Friedman um, is uh, starting a podcast called building the machine where he's basically interviewing operators for, um, for from all sorts of different tech companies. And, and so was lucky enough to be one of the first guests on, on that as well. So maybe I'm biased because I've been sort of doing the podcast circuit recently, but I guess I'll, I'll plug the other podcasts that I've been on. Uh, yeah. And I, and I did check out Eric's podcast. It was awesome. I mean, it's just, um, 
definitely hit so many different pieces of what I aim to pull from these podcasts. So yep. uh, that one was a lot of fun. And I didn't know Dorm Room Fund has had a podcast. Yeah, I think it's been around for a while. Um, okay. have that, to check was, that, one out. that was sort of a fun one. It hasn't come out yet, so hopefully it's good, but uh, <laughs> we'll see. How about outside of work? What do you like to do for fun outside of work? Increasingly gotten into cooking. Uh, we, uh, my wife and I are avid Blue Apron uh, customers and, and users. Um, their business is going through an interesting stretch recently, but uh, we love it. It's sort of a fun way for us to come home and uh, unwind, not be in front of a screen after, after work. Um, I historically been super into running. I, I ran cross country in high school, um, try to continue running through college. I'm trying to get more into that recently. Um, back into that, I guess. And, uh, you know, honestly, like just trying to, I, you know, I'm living and breathing radar all day, every day. I love it, but, but trying to sort of carve out time to, um, step away for a little bit. Often it's on those runs or while I'm cooking or while I'm on vacation, that's, um, I can sort of zoom out and, and connect the dots on sort of larger patterns and trends, right? And um, oftentimes stepping away is the, is the best thing you can do for your, for your productivity. I, I totally agree with the running piece. Like that's just such a great opportunity to kind of cleanse the mind and just think about things because you're, you're just kind of focused on, you know, exercising, running, and then, you know, just for whatever reason, I think it just helps the, the mind think mm -hmm. clearer thoughts as it relates to challenges you're facing with your business. So it's just, uh, it's, it's absolutely. Yeah. Well, Nick, thanks so much for taking the time to walk us through your background, all the great things that you've been up to as far as the different companies you were part of, obviously what you're up to with radar, which it's, I love hearing companies like this and I can see why the investors were super excited to invest in it. Cause there's so many different use cases and such a great, great opportunity to build a, a pillar company in New York and obviously all the great advice for other entrepreneurs to follow. Yeah. Thank you so much for having me on the show. Really enjoyed the conversation and, and hopefully it's helpful for uh, folks looking to follow them in, in, you know, in the same footsteps. Well, that's our show. I hope you found it useful and entertaining. If you did, please make sure you subscribe so you'll get future episodes. Also, please consider leaving us a five-star review and share this podcast with all of your friends and colleagues in the industry. It all really helps us out. Last but not least, don't forget to visit VentureFizz.com, the most trusted source for tech and startup jobs, news, and insights. Thanks for listening, and I'll see you next time.